about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring uh, Debbie Hansen, and, uh, and she'll be answering your, your most important questions on fly fishing for Florida's strain of bass. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Debbie a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to ask your question. We'll answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight, and, uh, and we'll look forward to doing that. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column of all the web pages. Uh, just fill in your name and your email address, and we'll keep you informed about all the upcoming shows. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Feedspot, Player FM, or any of the other platforms you might be using. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at any time to listen to the show and uh, also uh, to go out to any of those distribution channels uh, to listen to the show at a later date. Uh, the content of this broadcast is being copyrighted as the Property of Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Debbie Hansen about fly fishing for Florida's bass. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Cantui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength to weight ratios and dialed-in techniques, specific actions, and tapers that cater to the, a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. That's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Debbie, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Debbie's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. And uh, I have a long list of titles here, so if you're the winner, um, I'll be sending you that list, and you can pick from the list and get a great book from Stackpole. So here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question or questions that I ask at the end of the show, and they'll be about something that Debbie and I talk about during the show. So. You submit your answer along with your name and location in that text box on our homepage. So listen closely and uh, take notes, and uh, hopefully you'll have the right answer at the end of the show. Uh, that's also the same text box that you can ask questions at, uh, during the show, so one and the same. Okay. Hold on just a second here. All right. Um, our guest tonight is Captain Debbie Hansen. Debbie is an award-winning outdoor writer and freshwater guide living in Estero, Florida. Her passion for the outdoors has, was ignited at a young age due to her experience fishing on the lakes of Upper Peninsula of Michigan with her grandfather. 
Debbie's articles covering both freshwater and saltwater fishing techniques have appeared in publications such as Florida Game and Fish Magazine, Boat Us Magazine, uh, USA Today Hunt and Fish Magazine, and Gulf Shore Life Magazine. She's also a weekly contract blogger and content producer for TakeMeFishing.org. When Debbie isn't writing or guiding clients on the lakes and channels of southwest Florida, she can be found educating and encouraging newcomers to the sport. Uh, welcome, Debbie, to Ask About Fly Fishing. Good evening, Roger. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here this evening. Well, great. Good to have you. I have to ask you, uh, because I just read it in your bio, where did you fish with your grandfather in the, in the UP? We, my grandfather had a, my grandfather and my grandmother had a cottage on Stanley Lake, which is just outside Iron River, Michigan. So that is where I grew up, and he had me on the boat fishing with him from the time I was about five. <laughs> so here's so, the coincidence. Yes. My grandfather had a house that backed up to the Menominee River in uh, just the other side of the river from Iron Mountain, Michigan. Yes. And so. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is a coincidence. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of the U.S. for sure. Yeah, he was in, his house was in Aurora, Wisconsin, so literally just okay. across the river from Iron Mountain. But we used to float the Menominee River and fish for bass and, you know, smallmouth and largemouth and pike and musky and the whole, and that's where I learned a lot of my fishing was from my grandfather. So I just thought that was, uh, that was kind of cool to have that That connection. is cool. Yeah, that yeah. That is cool. It's a small world. It's a small fishing world. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, yeah, yeah. Well, we've got lots of uh, good questions tonight. On uh, on the bass down there. So let's let's start out first talking about uh, this Florida bass, uh, a specific strain. Why don't you introduce us to this fish and uh, tell us a bit about it in the background, and, and we'll start out there. Absolutely, I would I would love to. I get so excited to talk to people about our Florida strain fish, and just familiarize them with the differences between the Florida strain largemouth bass and the, and the northern strain because as a guide, I see a lot of people who come down from states up north, you know, the Midwest specifically where I grew up, and they think that, you know, a bass is a bass. And, you know, a lot of times here where I live in southwest Florida, Saltwater takes precedence. People come down, and that's really what they think of first and foremost when they want to go out fly fishing. They want to go out fly fishing on the flats. But, you know, I always like to encourage people to take advantage of some of the freshwater opportunities that we have and specifically pertaining to our Florida strain subspecies because it is different in both, you know, behavior and also in terms of, the size that this particular subspecies, our Florida strain fish, um, grow to. So, you know, primarily um, our Florida strain fish are not as aggressive as the northern strain, which makes them more of a challenge, actually, to catch, and they grow larger. And the other part of it is, is that, you know, here in the state of Florida, we have a very unique geological feature and I think, you know, there were some questions that came up about that. It's the Lake Wales Ridge, and that's where this particular strain of bass originated. And it basically um, 
you know, is in the center of the state, and that's today where a lot of our larger trophy fish are caught. So, um, yeah, I mean, the Florida strain fish is just, you know, we get those really dramatic head shakes and the acrobatic leaps out of the water, and it's just, to me, our Florida strain fish are really, really incredibly special. And, you know, there are a lot of other states that are starting to bring this strain in. Um, so it, it's definitely something to experience if you come down and you enjoy fly fishing for sure. Well, you said these are less aggressive than the northern strain, uh, but yes. I've always thought, um, you know, largemouth bass were, you know, they're pretty aggressive <laughs> on the take, especially, you know, the surface action is always so much fun. Uh, why would they, and I guess everything's relative too, right, um, one bass to another bass as far as aggressiveness, right. but what, um, what makes that so, do you think? Well, a lot of it has to do with temperature, Roger. So, you know, frankly, our Florida strain fish are much more sensitive to temperature changes, specifically cold fronts, as you might imagine. As are most Florida residents down here, we get used to the warm weather. And, you know, our Florida strain fish are no different. So when we get a dramatic, you know, cold front that comes through during the winter months, our Florida strain fish will, you know, come up with a case of lockjaw basically for a few days and they'll become more challenging to catch. Um, and, you know, the, the same is, is kind of true for the really, really warm months that we have of the year here during, you know, July and, and August. It can be more challenging too, obviously, because the water temperatures get so warm and particularly where I am in the southern part of the state. So it does make those fish a lot more sluggish and a lot less, you know, they're feeding, they're not expending as much energy, so they're feeding a lot less, and it, it really requires you to, you know, really get that presentation down right, and also to know when the best time is to fish, and really focus on what I like to refer to as, you know, sort of like a, a, a sort of magical window of period when, or magical window of time when you know you need to be out there during those more challenging type conditions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One thing I asked when we talked, uh, you know, earlier uh, was about this because it just kind of struck me as, as kind of funny was this Lake w Wales Ridge because I've been to Florida, all over Florida. <laughs> like I told you yeah. before, I said, I never saw any ridges. <laughs> Pretty flat. Yeah, so, uh, and exactly. Yeah, tell us a bit more yep. about that. So the Lake Wales Ridge is actually a series of ancient sand islands that run through the center of our state. It's about 150 miles north to south, and um, it runs through the Lake Wales region, which is, like I said, pretty much directly in the center of the state, and it's, I think, about five or six miles wide and 150 miles, you know, north to south. And these, this chain of islands was the only part of the state of Florida that was above water during the Ice Age. So as a result, unique plant and animal forms developed on this ridge, and our Florida strain largemouth bass was one of those unique animal forms that developed. So to me, I just think that's so fascinating yeah. and so interesting. And, um, you know, we have a one of our largest state fish hatcheries here, which is the Florida Bass Conservation Center, 
does a lot of education on the Lake Wales Ridge. And, of course, um, you know, they have a visitor center that you can go to and visit and learn more about the Florida strain fish and their behaviors and their, you know, spawning um, rituals and, and that type of thing. But it's, it, like I said, it's just, it's, it's really so interesting to me. And to this day, if you really want to catch a trophy largemouth bass in the state of Florida, that region surrounding that ridge is really the prime place to do it. Now, are those primarily lakes there, or are they lakes and rivers? They are. Streams? Okay. It's, yep, it's primarily lakes. Yep, we really, you know, we have some rivers, you know, more up towards the northern portion of the state, but these are primarily lakes. So, you know, among the lakes that I would name off in that area are going to be, you know, um, we've got Lake Ixtapoga, we've got Lake Placid, and you know all the lakes generally in that in that particular area are the higher producers. And we actually have a program here in Florida, which is is pretty interesting, and it's called the um, Trophy Catch Program. And the Trophy Catch Program has a website. It's just trophycatch.com. And you know I always tell people if you're coming down to the state of Florida and you really want to catch that that trophy bass and you want to you know kind of narrow down the types of areas that you should go to or visit or the types of um, environments that you should hone in on, that website is a really good resource because you can pull it up and it has a database loaded within the website because what happens is anytime anyone in the state of Florida catches a largemouth bass that's eight pounds or larger, whether it's on fly or artificial or on live bait, they're able to take a picture of that fish, upload it to the website with all the information in terms of where they caught it, what they caught it on, and then that all that information gets entered into the database and they get entered into a drawing and they can potentially win a boat at the end of the year among other prizes. So it's a really good citizen science program that also is very educational in terms of, you know, folks learning which lakes in the state, which waterways are the highest producers of these trophy fish. Yeah, I can just, I, I'm envisioning this cartoon right now where where the center posts the fish and the location, and then you see all these people with their boats and trailers. And <laughs> going, to, going to those lakes specifically, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's kind of my picture of that. But anyway, that's great. Yeah, and have they, you said um, they are starting to, move the strain outside of Florida? Is there actually any of them that have been populated in other states? Yeah, they've been doing that for some time. So, you know, those folks who are familiar with some of the, you know, bass tournament circuits, Bassmaster and FLW and, um, you know, other bass tournament circuits, they have um, brought the strain into, you know, some of the lakes in Texas and California, um, and even into Alabama and Tennessee, and even into some lakes in Mexico, believe it or not. So even moving oh, wow. out of the United States into Mexico. And, you know, to a, to a fairly um, good level of success, too. And because these fish grow larger and grow faster, obviously it's much more conducive and exciting, I think, for those tournament anglers. So it's a positive thing. Mm-hmm. What are some of the factors that contribute to the, their growth to these, you know, trophy-sized bass? You know, I'm going to bring it to three 
three primary um, elements, and that's, you know, number one, food or forage, number two, specific type of habitat, and then number three, you know, the pressure that those fish are seeing or not seeing. Um, and I think, you know, speaking to the situation here in Florida, there are certain components, you know, generally um, waters that are nutrient-rich, that have high levels of vegetation, that have, you know, a population of, a high population of different types of forage, specifically um, wild shiners here in Florida are one of the preferred prey of the Florida strain largemouth bass. But then, you know, like, like I was saying, those lakes in the middle of the state also, they don't see a lot of pressure. And even though we have this program and people can go and kind of look to see where these, these prime fisheries are, you know, a lot of people really aren't, because I think our state, again, is so focused on a lot of saltwater fishing opportunities and the center of our state isn't as, you know, population dense as some of the other cities around the coast. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, there's really not a lot of pressure, all things considered. So it, it just wow. creates a really, really good opportunity for those of us that like to pursue the bass, the Florida stream bass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, very, uh, it's, and you're right. I mean, everybody thinks Florida salt, you know. But but I also think, right. I hadn't thought so much about the largemouth, but I did think a lot about more the brackish water, you know, fish, as well as a peacock bass. You know, which everybody, mm-hmm. you know, is that's that's on their bucket list. I think if you're a fly fisher, you want to uh, to get a peacock under under your belt. So um, now that we're going to talk, you know, mainly about largemouth, but since I just brought it up, uh, when you take your people out on trips, um, are these peacock bass also in the same fisheries that you fish? Or could a person catch one or the other during a, a trip out with you? They can, and that depends on the time of year because primarily the way that I guide Roger is, is based on season. So, you know, I know a lot of guides will focus on a specific waterway and maybe they fish that waterway year-round or just, you know, for me here, where I fish is highly dependent on what's going on in terms of our rainfall, our seasonal rainfall. So I would say, like, for example, this time of year, we're getting ready to head into our summer months, and it's our rainy season. So here, there are a lot of canal systems that are connected to weirs where there's, you know, a lot of water that starts to move this time of year. Um, and I like to fish a lot of those canals that are connected to, to weir systems um, and a lot of the lakes during this time of year. But then during the dry season, which is our winter, essentially, it's a really, really fantastic opportunity to fish the Everglades. And now that is a place where the largemouth bass and the peacock bass, you know, coincide in the same waterways. So we have a series of canal systems in the Everglades that, you know, when we have a a dry period throughout the year, like I was saying, our winter, the fish have nowhere to go. They, they really can't spread out into the marshes because all the marshes dry up, so they'll stack up in the canal systems and the Everglades. And, you know, there's the opportunity to catch a lot of different freshwater species, and the largemouth bass and peacock bass are certainly two of those. Now, is the, do the peacock bass prefer a little warmer water than the largemouth in general? Is that why you're going down <laughs> south of it? 
Yeah, they do, but they, they're more active. I would say, you know, they're still, both of them, you can still catch both of them, but I would say, you know, the peacock bass generally start to get a lot more fired up because they're native to the Amazon basin originally. They get a lot more active, and their preferred feeding temperature range is going to be a lot higher than the largemouth bass, and they're a lot more aggressive. You really need to strip your fly very fast and, um, you know, just be prepared because peacock bass are extremely tenacious fighters. So, um, <laughs> like so generally, yeah, they are a blast. I mean, it, they are really, really fun. And they serve a very important purpose in our ecosystems here for, for those people who don't know. So I always encourage people to practice, you know, really safe catch and release, proper catch and release methods with the peacock bass because they were brought here from F by FWC, our Fish and Wildlife Service, to help kind of control some of the other non-native species that we have, such as the spotted tilapia and some other cichlid species. So they serve a very in, important purpose in terms of keeping some of those other undesirable non-natives in balance and in check. But yeah, getting back to your original question, they do. They like they like it warmer. And generally, you know, Miami-Dade, Broward counties, and then even here, um, just south of me in Collier County, that's kind of like the extent of or their primary range. Because once they start going a little bit farther north, if we get a snap of cold weather, it can be detrimental to them. You know, water temperatures that fall, you know, around 60 degrees can cause a die-off in that population of peacock bass. Mm, yeah, yeah. We did get a question from Dan in Miami, um, and he's uh, asking about uh, Everglades. So um, he says the government plans to let more water run from Lake Okeechobee down to the Everglades, and the idea is to improve the health of the wetland. How do you expect this to change the fishing? Will we see a change in habitat, spawning seasonality, population? Will it impact the largemouth peacock bass balance? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's hard to say exactly how it's going to impact the fishery because we really don't know, right? I do know that what is happening right now is a part of part of the original flow of water from Lake Okeechobee South into the Everglades and then out into Florida Bay is being restored through this this plan. So this was kind of how it originally was before the Army Corps of Engineers came in and rerouted the water out the St. Lucie River and the Caloosahatchee River. So obviously it's been like this for, you know, decades upon decades, and we're, we're kind of changing things again. So I'm sure it will have an impact on the habitat and on the fish populations to some extent. But I do believe that as far as, you know, the largemouth bass and peacock bass populations, I think for the long term it will actually be advantageous because, like I was saying, for largemouth bass, Specifically, nutrient-rich waters are what they prefer. And while a lot of that will be, you know, filtered out by a lot of the grasses in the Everglades, there is a lot more nutrients that will be flowing south from Lake Okeechobee. So, you know, I, I'm thinking there's probably going to be a little bit of an adjustment period, you know, some years of adjustment there. But I do think that it's a very good thing for the long term. So hopefully that answered some of those questions. Yeah, 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 that's good. Um, one more question before we take a quick break. Phil McCartney in Kentucky asks, is there a time of year where topwater action is best? Is there a time of year 
uh, when you should go to the salt water instead. Uh, so, is that, <laughs> uh, and I hear what he's saying. I mean, you, you definitely mentioned seasonality, but uh, is there a place to go all year long for, for the largemouth, or are there seasons to avoid? And, uh, and you probably answer Phil's question about top water. Yeah, absolutely. So as far as time of year, you know, I would say that it gets more challenging, again, if we have a cold snap or in the heat, extreme heat of summer. Um, but you, you can still catch fish year-round. It's just it's definitely going to be more challenging. You're not going to see the same numbers of fish, say, for example, in July and August, that you would if you're fishing, you know, anywhere from the end of January through March or April just because of the higher temperatures. Um, but you can catch them year-round. You really can. And then as far as the time of year when topwater action is best, like for me, I love, we start getting our, our afternoon rain showers here in Florida, you know, this time of year. And so anywhere between like three and six, you know, we get those rain showers that come through. And after that, just as the sun is setting, right after those rain showers come through, that's really when I love to fish top water. I love it. Just after rain comes through, the rains kind of cool off the surface temperature of the water a bit. You know, you can usually hear all those frogs and there's a lot of forage that's kind of being washed into the water from the shorelines and really top water is phenomenal. My my favorite time is probably like between 6 to 8 p.m. to fish top water. Good, good. Well, I hope that answers this question. I think it does. And time to take a quick little break, and when we come back, we'll start talking with Debbie about some of the equipment you should have down there and, and move into flies and, and then into strategies and techniques. So uh, stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach and kayaks on pongas and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, Jack and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Debbie Hansen about fly fishing for Florida's largemouth bass. If you'd like to ask Debbie a question, just go to our homepage to AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box there to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. So, Debbie, I always ask my guests uh, at this time of the show, uh, what's going on in your fly fishing world? Tell us a bit about your business and maybe any other associated activities you're up to with fly fishing. Yeah, absolutely, Roger. So, yeah, right now I'm, I host a, a weekly radio show here on our ESPN affiliate in Southwest Florida. So that's Real Talk Radio on ESPN 99.3. And folks can, can always listen to that on uh, the Internet just by going to 99.3ESPN.com. So I've, I've, spent, I've been spending quite a bit of time putting this show together because the typical format was we have guests and 
you know, with our, our current situation, trying to stay healthy and practice social distancing. We haven't been able to have guests. So I've been working on that, and then I will be speaking to the Naples backcountry fly fishers here locally in October, and hopefully, you know, coming up in January, heading back out to the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival with Riley Rockcrafters. And um, so far, that's all the events I have on the uh, on the calendar, and and uh, you know, just to continue guiding and and doing some casting events and educational events once once we get through this period of social distancing and and getting back to, to hopefully being healthier here. Right, right. Now, what's your uh, website where people can find out more about you and what you're doing and your services? Folks can go to it's she fishes and the number 2.com. So a lot of people think it's she fishes Two T O O, but it's she fishes and the number two dot com. Okay. So that is that's my website for my guiding business, and so folks can go there. And I I do also post you know information as far as you know gear tips and suggestions, and I have a blog on the website, and I try to post fishing reports as often as I can. So. Um, my website is a, is a great resource, and then I do a weekly blog also for takemefishing.org. And so every week I've got new content going up on the blog for them, and I typically help them out with some knot tying videos and things too. So if you're looking for knot tying videos to do, if you're spending more time at home, you can go to takemefishing.org and their YouTube channel, and they've got some really great resources for you. Great, great. Now, in your guiding services, you primarily fish for largemouth or peacock bass. Are there any other species that you're also guiding for? Primarily largemouth bass and peacock bass. I mean, I do, you know, also guide for bluegill. I've got a lot of, you know, kids and, um, you know, I've got, sometimes I have, I've actually been getting a lot of couples and a lot of fathers and daughters doing trips and sometimes you know for for the kids or for beginners they love to chase the panfish on fly which is you know here we've got the red ear sunfish and like I said our, our bluegill so I do some of those species too the panfish species but primarily it's largemouth bass and peacock bass. Yeah and that's a great way to introduce kids into fishing is uh, is the sunfish. Uh, I mean I, I it's <laughs> The way I introduced my kids to, because it's you know they have success early on you know and uh, it gets them excited so um, yeah I think that's a great way to get them out and getting them connected out there. Well, great, great. Yeah, sounds good. Absolutely. So let's absolutely. Uh, jump back in here about the largemouth and uh, let's talk about. Uh, you said they like nutrient-rich waters and uh, let's talk about some of the things that they eat that I assume we're going to try to imitate, you know, with our flies and presentations. So so what's their primary yes. food uh, that uh, they're feeding on? <laughs> with largemouth bass, it's almost a question of what don't they eat. Um, okay. So, you know, <laughs> basically insects, small rodents, amphibians, snakes, worms, minnows, it kind of runs the range. But, you know, as with any other type of fly fishing, you're going to match the hatch to your to the waterways where you're fishing most often. And, um, you know, here, again, that can be dependent on kind of like the seasonality portion of it. I mean, we do see 
like I was saying earlier, like I know when I go out after those rain showers in the summer and I hear those frogs, I know that's probably a pretty good time to either throw a topwater popper or something that's going to mimic a frog on the surface, um, you know, versus when I'm seeing the birds, a lot of times here, you know, we'll see certain times of the year, the birds will, our wading birds will pick up and drop crayfish and sometimes they'll drop them in the middle of the road. And when I start seeing more of those crayfish, then I know, you know, that's kind of the time of year, obviously, to be using some of those types of patterns. So, yeah, I mean, what they eat really kind of runs the range. I think it really just comes down to kind of reading the water and paying really close attention to what you're seeing when you go out there. Mm-hmm. So they do get, um, I mean, you know, I'm up in Colorado, and we fish a lot of trout up here. And, um you know, we're always, you know, like you said, matching the hatch. Or, you know, fish here get very focused on whatever, you know, they're feeding on and sometimes, you know, turn away from anything else. But I always thought of um, largemouth bass being, you know, very opportunistic feeders. But they do, they will get focused, you know, to where they're really just feeding on a lot of crayfish or will they still turn their head yeah, and the mouth that- going across? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, during, you know, I definitely think that during certain times of the year when there is a type of forage that's more prominent in the ecosystem, they will certainly key in on that a little bit more than other presentations. So, yeah, I mean, I take that into consideration. I mean, I, you know, and also I really, really believe wholeheartedly in the fact that water temperature has a lot to do with it too. So I always think about, you know, the primary temperature range, feeding temperature range, or the preferred feeding temperature range for our Florida strain largemouth bass is between 65 and 80 degrees. So when I think about, you know, I know when the water temperature is in that range, I know that the bass are going to be a lot more likely to feed on larger profile fly patterns the patterns that were working through the water column faster because, you know, they have more energy to expend. They have more energy to digest larger baits and larger forage. So, you know, I'll use a lot of those larger profile patterns or flies when it's in that specific, you know, when the water is generally in that specific temperature range. Now, when we start getting, again, like I know we were talking about earlier, if a cold front comes through, or we're in the heat of summer, then I really scale down the size of the flies that I'm using. I mean, generally, I use anything from, you know, a size 6 all the way up to a size 2, but I'd use a size 2, you know, or a larger larger topwater fly, something along those lines, when I know those fish are going to be really aggressive. Yeah, high metabolism rate and so forth, yeah. Ex- yeah that's exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I hadn't really thought about that as an aspect of, of that. I guess we have the you know similar thing here in, in Colorado where you know in the winter time they're most of the fish are feeding on midges because you know they slow down. They're not using. They don't have as much energy because of the cold water and, and air temperature, and, and so they're feeding on a lot of small bugs. And I suppose I never thought about the digestive aspect of it, but that probably has a lot to do with it. Yeah, in the same way. Yeah, I um, think. I think the energy, the energy that they expend has a lot to do with it because, and, and two, you know, I, I think, you know, the bigger fish do behave differently than, you know, the smaller 
bass do and mm-hmm. feed on different types of forage. Yeah, yeah. Um, Phil McCartney wrote in here on the Internet he asking, he says, having grown up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, I assume you love fishing for smallmouth. Have you found any lessons learned from fishing for Florida largemouth that coincide with techniques used for Michigan smallmouth? Oh, yeah. Gosh, smallmouth bass on fly are so much fun, too. Um, I mean, you know, both are just an absolute hoot on poppers. I mean, I love catching. I know summer is prime topwater time for smallmouth bass, and but... Yeah, but I but you know I haven't fished for smallmouth bass other than you know trip I made to to Pennsylvania last year to fish with um, to fish with a friend of mine who's also a guide up in that area close to where he was actually um, friends with Bob Clouser <laughs> interestingly mm-hmm. enough so um, that was one of the only experiences that I've had recently fishing for smallmouth bass other than you know when I was real real young. So it's hard for me to, and I'm so focused on largemouth bass these days that it's hard for me to make any other correlations. But, I mean, right. I do, the smallmouth are just, to me, a lot more aggressive and, and uh, yeah, they're just a, a different fight. But, yeah. Um, yeah. but they're both a blast. Yeah. So let's talk about equipment. Uh, what do you suggest for rods and um you know, weight rods and, and lines you're using? You know, are you using floating, sinking tips, sinking lines at all? Uh, tell us a bit yep, about so, equipment. Yeah, so my equipment, my setup generally, I got a seven weight that I love. I use a Riley Rod Crafters Debbie Hansen Series seven weight, <laughs> <laughs> which is a medium oh. fast progressive caper rod. And, you know, it just, for the, the size of the flies that I'm throwing, I mean, it handles you know, some of those wind-resistant poppers and even some of the uh, lighter um, bait fish patterns really, really well. So, I mean, I, I generally use my 7-weight. I'm not throwing super, super chunky poppers. I mean, I know some people go all the way up to an 8-weight, but, um, you know, in my personal opinion, the 7-weight works great. I love it. It's really versatile. Um, I generally am using floating you know, floating line in, in most cases. I really like the Scientific Angler's Bass Bug Taper. That's one of my absolute favorites. Um, it's strong. It's got some nice punch to it. So, and, and yeah, I mean, it's a weight-forward floating line. Um, you know, there, there are some occasions when you might want to use a, a thick tip line, for example, you know, like if you're fishing a crayfish pattern or something on the bottom and you're fishing a little bit deeper water. But in most cases for me, like I use my floating line and then if I'm using a bait fish pattern or something that I want to work in either, you know, closer to the middle or the bottom of the water column, I just use a fluorocarbon leader instead of mono. You know, for me, if I'm fishing top water, I'm, I am very adamant about using a monofilament leader just because the monofilament is more buoyant and it just gives the right action to those top water poppers and gurglers and anything you're using on the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, don't, don't use any intermediate lines then? You know, I, I don't. No, I really don't. Okay. I mean, see, and that's the difference between the water that we fish here too. I mean, you know, our Florida lakes are very shallow. So, you know, that's what people have to keep in mind. And for, for a lot of folks down here who are just getting started out with fly fishing, you know, they're starting out in a neighborhood pond, you know, catching, 
panfish or bass. And again, you know, most all of these ponds and our canal systems are shallow. I mean, the, most of the, you know, waterways, like I said, I think I mentioned it earlier, you know, four to six, maybe four to eight feet on average. And if you're using, a, you know, a pattern that's got like some weighted bead chain eyes and you're using a fluorocarbon leader, you can still get that fly in most cases where it needs to be. So okay. I try to keep things pretty simple. As far as, you know, my leader and tippet, I do use, uh, you know, the, the um, 50-25-25. Um, it's a, like a three-tiered tapered leader, and I generally taper it down. I start out with 30 pound at the butt section and then taper it down to 20 and then I generally use like 10 pound tippet which you know basically like 2x tippet and so they're not leader yeah, shy I mean, they're really they're really yeah. not I mean there are some instances where certain times of the year when the water is clear um, you know I generally will I might want to scale down my tip it a little bit and go a little bit lighter or make my leader a little bit longer, but they really aren't leader shy. And most of the waters that I'm fishing, you know, they, they are stained or a little bit murky just because of all the vegetation and because of all the nutrient, you know, runoff in a lot of those waterways. Mm -hmm. Now, are you uh, doing primarily all your fishing from a boat? Do you do any wading, shore fishing? Yeah, wading is something we, we really don't do here in Florida because we have these, these things called gators. So we have to be very <laughs> okay, mindful yeah. of those. And they really, really like to hang out where big bass are. So, oh. um, no, we, yeah, so we, wading is, is not something that we do. I do do some land-based, you know, just fishing in my, my own free time or if I'm, you know, taking kids fishing, introducing them to the sport, I'll take them from the shoreline of a pond or something along those lines. But when I guide, I do it exclusively from my boat. So I've got a 15-foot tracker topper. It's nothing fancy. It's a John boat, but it works perfect for all the waterways that I love to fish. And, you know, I've got it set up really, you know, really, really well with a trolling motor. And I've got a little, you know, four-horse outboard on it. So for the, you know, the smaller waterways that I fish here, it's, it's perfect for that, and uh, yeah. it works really, really well. Okay, good, good. Well, we're going to take another quick break here, and then when we come back, we'll talk about the, the flies that, uh, that you're using. So uh, hold on just a few seconds, and we'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as an unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick boats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Debbie Hansen about fly fishing for Florida's largemouth bass. So, Debbie, let's um, let's dig into a little 
about the, the flies that you're using. Now, um, Thomas McGann wrote in. He's from Fort Worth, Texas. He says, what are the five most effective uh, flies for fishing lily pads, heavy moss, and timber to around four to eight feet? He's got the depth right, I guess, for the kind of fishing that you do. Based he does. So, so talk about maybe some of the different different flies you use. And uh, and then later I'd like to, to kind of explore your, because this, this is another part of his question, is you know how you use those, um, you know, in the way of presentation. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, so I would say, you know, that topwater poppers for sure are great to fish, especially around vegetation like lily pads. Um, you know, the one thing that that I would recommend to folks is just, you know, make sure either tie on a weed guard. You can use like some twenty-pound mono and just create a weed guard and make sure that you've got a popper with a weed guard to help work around that vegetation because otherwise, yeah, it can be a little bit of a challenge. But it also presents a really good opportunity for you to work on some of those, you know, some of your casting techniques too to to get some of those curved casts around those lily pads and some of that timber and, and uh, vegetation. But, yeah, so I would say topwater poppers, sliders, Dahlberg divers, um, Drew Chacon has a great pattern called the Tuscan Bunny, which was actually originally something that he tied for tarpon, but it works really well for bass. And that kind of, that you know, it, it's just a really, really good pattern and one you can work around vegetation. But, um, yeah, primarily I would say the poppers, sliders, the uh, Dahlberg diver, those would be probably some of my top recommendations in that situation yeah the um we did uh, i did interview drew chacon a couple of times on this show too so people can go to our archive and look at drew chacon yeah and um, yeah he's a great fly tire and innovator uh so um yeah I can he see really why. is yeah um when you talk about no you, you say when you're talking about poppers uh Will any popper do? Is there a particular style of popper or colors of poppers, that, or do you mix that up uh, trying to get the bite? Yeah, I mean, I, I use a lot of foam poppers. Again, Drew has one called the, the pineapple grenade popper. That's really, <laughs> okay. that's really cool. He, he actually has a, has a great book that I'd recommend called Largemouth Bass Flies, which is just fantastic. It's got all the step-by-steps for tying these different flies. But, yeah, I mean, I, I love just, you know, in, even the basic foam poppers work, work really, really well. I generally, you know, some of them have like a, a concave, you know, front to them that really displaces that water. I mean, you really want to hear that, like, you know, kerplunk, 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 I don't really know how else to explain it, but the more noise that that popper produces, that's really what you want because you really want to attract the attention of those fish, especially, you know, in those areas that are around the vegetation. So, so they're more attracted to the, uh, to the sound, do you think, than the action actually on the water? I, I think sound has a great deal to do with it as well as, you know, getting your cast in just the right place. And, and again, I think that in terms of your presentation, too, you kind of have to, you know, sometimes based on, 
you, you have to experiment with your retrieve a little bit, just like any other situation. You know, sometimes the fish are going to be more responsive if you're just kind of like ripping that popper through and working it really fast. And then there's other days where I will tell my clients, I'll notice that if you do sort of like a, you know, pop, pop, and pause, and then you wait and you let those rings clear around that popper before you start, you know, stripping it again, a lot of times when that popper is paused, that's when the fish will come up and, and smack it. So, you know, generally, again, when it's you're working it faster, based on my experience, when that water temperature is more in that, that prime feeding range of 65 to 80 degrees and those fish are really fired up. And then, you know, the other times maybe giving it a little bit of a pause if it's a little bit, you know, the water temperature is warmer and, you know, the fish may not be as willing to be quite as aggressive as they would be otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been, I've got a, a lake right down the hill from me here, um, not for bass but for trout. But I've been, um, uh, in fact, Richard Polatsky, who was up here a couple of days ago fishing with me, he's been on our show too, but he developed this mouse pattern uh, made out of foam, and he calls it Pepe Raton. So we've been playing around with those, but it's it's just like what you were talking about, um, playing around. I mean, I've had them hit that. You know, it's a top water. It's a popper, basically, that looks like a mouse. But um, mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting because they've hit it at all those points you just mentioned, which is, uh, in fact, when Richard and I were down there, the first cast I had, I, I cast it out there, and I was just trying to, you know, to get my line in order. And the first fish hit it before I even could get my line, you know, tight. And, you know, and then I've, so some of them hit it right when the, when it hits the water. And then some of them hit it while it's moving and some hit it at the pause. So it's, and some hit it like five feet away from the shore. You know, they must be following it for a while before they hit it. So I'm assuming bass are, are similar, but I'm getting to a question of how far do you think the bass will move for these, you know, for these top water flies? Do you have to hit them on the head oh, with it, or will they move six feet for it? Or I, I think you know, I think they can key in on it from from easily, probably from five or six feet away. I mean, I've seen it because there's been so many times when you know, either myself or I've had clients on the boat and they've you know made a cast, and you you can literally see the fish, you know, starting to wake at it, and they'll wake behind that popper and just absolutely chase it so I really believe you know they key into that through their lateral line they pick up on those that sounds and the vibration and you know what's going on in the water and and aggressively pursue it so yeah I don't think as far as your presentation at least with you know with poppers from my experience that you need to be that precise which is one of the other things that makes it so fun because to me it's so exciting when you do see that fish, you know, coming and you see it, you know, chasing your fly and, you know, geez. And then that big old bucket mouth opens up behind your popper and there's just <laughs> nothing more exciting than that. So Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, Dan Blayton in uh, Morgan Hill, California, uh, wrote in. He says, hey, Debbie, have you heard of a whistler? He says, just kidding, I know you have. I know you caught some of your Florida largemouth bass on them. What is your favorite topwater bug style, 
and what fly line to use to launch them. So you've kind of covered this, but maybe you have something specific to say about yeah. that. Yeah. No, and, and Dan Blanton, so his his whistler pattern is definitely one of my favorites. He's, he's, oh, it's his pattern? He's, teasing, he's te definitely teasing me there, yeah. Okay. He, his, his whistler pattern was originally designed as a saltwater pattern, but it also works phenomenally well for a largemouth bass. And so the trophy largemouth bass that I caught was caught on his whistler pattern. Um, the whistler has some bead chain, heavier bead chain eyes, and I was fishing it actually, it was right at the end of May in some pretty warm conditions in the middle of the day, but that fly was able to get down deeper in the water column, and I was fishing a shadow line right around the dock, and uh, so it was super exciting. So I, there's a, a very special place in my heart for his whistler pattern. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, how much um, did you pay him to put that question in there? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know, I didn't. But Dan, if you're out there, thank you for the largest largemouth bass I've ever caught on fly. Yes. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, yeah, that's super exciting. exciting. Yeah, it was that's a, it was, he, it was uh, tied in, in black. It had black and then some copper flash and. So, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was awesome. Um, but my favorite topwater bug style, yeah, I'm going to go, my favorite topwater I'm going to say is, um, I'm going to go with Drew's pineapple grenade popper. That's okay. definitely one of my one of my favorites. It's, uh, he ties it with his, his famous fettuccine foam on the, on the back end. And, and I also like poppers as far as topwater poppers that have, um, you know, the rubber legs that kind of have the motion and movement. Um, on the surface of the water, I really think that, you know, when the, the bass are keying in on insects and that type of thing, that those legs and the movement of those legs are also, you know, one of the things that entices the bass to strike, just the yeah. movement that's produced. Now, you had said before um, that if you've got a pop or whatever, that if it doesn't have a wheat guard on, that you should put one on. Can you explain to folks how you do that um, uh, if, if they do have some? Uh, flies that don't have the guards? Yeah, I mean, I just basically, I mean, myself personally, I know my, my friend Joe Mahler ties most of my poppers for me just these days because I spend so much time on the water. But, I mean, you can just basically take a piece of that 20-pound mono and, you know, clip off a, a small, um, just a small, I would say, geez, yeah, not even like a half an inch of it and just... Um, I've glued it, like, when I make my foam poppers, the slit on the bottom, I just basically glue it right in that section up close to the eye of the hook. So you've just got one piece of mono sticking down, basically? I just use one piece of mono sticking down. Okay. Yep, exactly. Okay. That's okay. basically Good. how I do it. I've seen other people that use two pieces, like Drew's. Um, like a fork. Pineapple yeah. grenade popper has the yeah, has the two pieces that come down essentially from the right below the eye of the hook. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, Gil Hasten uh, from California wrote in. He says, "Do you have any good patterns imitating worms, leeches, snakes, or other long, elongated water creatures that might mimic a plastic worm?" Yeah, something that mimics a plastic worm. I mean, obviously, you know, the the woolly bugger is definitely something that mimics a leech, the good old woolly bugger pattern. But the other pattern I would recommend him checking into is that Tuscan bunny pattern of Drew's, which is 
or you know bunny the bunny leech pattern, um, which I don't use a whole lot of leech patterns down here. I mean I've I've used woolly buggers and had some success on those. Um, I use a lot more I would say you know bait fish minnow patterns, the topwater poppers. I use Chuck Craft's Crelax. I use the Clouser. So not as much of the leech patterns, but um, again, mm -hmm. I would say Drew's Tuscan Bunny pattern for sure would be something that would mimic a leech. Yeah, he. Uh, I'm going to jump to his other part of his question. He says, uh, you know, he has have multiple options of places to fish for bass where he lives in Central California. He says, however, catching a bass on a fly is much more challenging than say a plastic worm, spinner bait, or other type of lure. In fact, I have sight fished for bass with flies, uh, several options given to a uh, sitting bass only to have the fish either move out of the way or totally ignore my offering. Yet when throwing a plastic worm at the same fish, it elicits a strike. What gives? Any hints for Gil? Yeah, I think, you know, I think part of it is just thinking about you know, plastic, if you're, if you're throwing a plastic worm, and it depends how you're rigging that worm, too, you know, when it elicits the strikes, um, I think a lot of it has to do with the action, but it also has to do with where in the water column that bait is being presented. So, you know, like, for, for me, I fish a lot of, um, I mean, I've used a lot of weightless soft plastics in the past, and and, you know, then a lot of people also Texas rig a lot of the soft plastic worms, and that's basically, you know, you're kind of dragging it along the bottom a little bit, maybe giving it a few twitches here and there. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with where you're fishing and what portion of the water column and and the action. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know if, if that's answering his question as far as what gives, but I think, you know, if you are somebody who fly fishes and also fishes with some of these different artificials with either spinning gear or bait caster, you know, that's part of what you need to think about is, um, you know, well, what type of fly are you using? That would be my first question. And if you've had them hit a plastic worm before, are you, have you tried, you know, something that's, and if that plastic worm was Texas rigged with a bullet weight, have you tried something that, you know, you're working down farther in the water column mm -hmm. that's basically in that same, you know, that same portion of the water column or that's right. mimicking that same exact type of presentation? So, so in other yeah. words, if, if, yeah, I don't know, maybe you can explain what a Texas rigged worm is. I'm, I'm not much of a worm fisherman, so <laughs> you'll have yeah. to explain that to me. But, uh, it's just basically taking a soft plastic and, you know, what, what bass anglers will do is take a, a, it's like a bullet weight. It's a weight that, you know, is basically shaped like a, bu a bullet and you rig it above your, some people rig the bullet weight and then a, a plastic bead in murky water conditions because the bead kind of clacks and then they'll have the, uh, the soft plastic worm beneath it. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that bullet weight just enables the worm to, you know, get all the way down to the bottom, but it also kind of gives it a little bit of action so that, you know, the front part of the worm is going to be sort of down on the bottom of the, you know, on the bottom of the lake or area where you're fishing, and then the, the 
that tail end of the worm kind of comes up and has some action. It's sort of like, you know, has a lot of motion in the water column that's going to elicit a strike in some cases. So I think it's just you're not really comparing apples to apples, so it's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> because kind of there's like, no way that you can get that? plastic to yeah. have the same type of motion that, you know, that you would from some of these other, you know, from the materials that you're using when you're tying flies because you're not using the same materials, plain and simply. Yeah. So um, if the, person the only thing you can do is... Let's, let's look at it this way. If the person next to you is fishing worms on the bottom and you're not getting any strikes with your flies, then what would you suggest to the fly fisher to you know, to try um, in lieu of that plastic worm. Would you go yeah, to a leech on the bottom or something like that? Yeah, something that's weighted. Like I would definitely use, um, I know, like for example, I've had a lot of situations where I've had fish, you know, bass that they don't want anything that I'm presenting to them that is, you know, being worked through the middle of the water column. I know, um, like, Dan has some jig hook minnows that you can kind of, like, bounce on the bottom. And the way that they sit on the bottom with the fibers kind of, like, you know, extending up and, and getting all that motion out of those fibers, I've seen the fish respond better in those types of scenarios to that presentation, if that makes sense, because it's getting down deeper. You can give it kind of give those types of flies slow hops along the bottom in order to elicit those strikes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Let's, uh, let's take another quick break, and we'll come back and talk about some more strategies and uh, help out our people in hooking up with more of these largemouth bass. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like the Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about the fish and their habitats, like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. FFI's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish and to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind of experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Debbie Hansen about fly fishing for Florida's largemouth bass. If you'd like to ask Debbie a question, go to our homepage at Ask About Fly Fishing and use that Q&A text box to send us your question, and we'll try to get your question answered tonight on the show. So let's see here. Um, we do have some more questions on techniques, and uh, let me just check one thing here before we jump back over there. All right. So um, one question was, where do you look for the larger fish, Debbie? If you're looking for that trophy fish, 
is it number one the the particular water you go to in Florida? Um, I, I think you'd mentioned earlier the waters, uh, the lakes on the ridge tend to produce larger fish, and and where do you look for them in the water? Yeah, great questions. Definitely, you know that that portion of the state. If you if you want to increase your chances, you want to go to that that portion of the state of Florida. Um, like I said, trophy catch. Dot com is, is a great resource to look to see which particular lakes are producing those big fish. And then, you know, the other thing to think about is just you want, if you're fishing a particular lake, there's a few primary things that you want to key in on. And that's number one for the, the bigger fish, any place that has like a, a drop-off or a place where there's a shallow flat that is adjacent to any type of deep drop or some deep water. You know, largemouth bass, our Florida strain largemouth bass are ambush predators, so really any ambush points and access that they have to those drop-offs, you know, vegetation cover, any place that they've got protection from predators, of course, and then wherever there's going to be forage, you know, they obviously, you know, those larger fish are, they're going to need to eat fairly frequently. So there's all those factors that need to be taken into consideration for sure. Now, when you said you caught your, your uh, trophy, um, you said it was uh, by a dock and a, a shadow line, I think. It was. Said. It yeah, was, so. exactly. Yep, there was a shadow line right underneath the dock and I cast it right along that shadow line. And, and that's the thing, you know, I mean, especially during the summer months here when we've got that, you know, bright Florida sun that's just beating down on the water, I can't stress enough to folks how important it is to really key in on anywhere where there's going to be shade and also a high, you know, a high percentage of, of vegetation because, in the summer months, that vegetation has a lot of um, has a higher percentage of dissolved oxygen. It produces more dissolved oxygen in the water, and that's really you know where those fish are are going to generally be. So you want to kind of stack the odds in your favor by you know kind of compiling this list in your head of okay, we need to have you know a um, vegetation cover, some you know ambush points. If there's a shallow to deep drop somewhere. And then obviously any place where you're seeing uh, a lot of forage or bait fish activity or, um, you know, insects or anything along those lines is going to be where you want to really hone in on, ideally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Phil McCartney also wrote in again on the Internet. He says, if I saw a huge largemouth bass making a wake for my fly, I would expect to hear the music from Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> approximately how large are the biggest largemouth uh, that your clients have caught on flies? Not as big as Jaws, I don't think, Phil. No, no, no. My clients, uh, up to, you know, up to eight pounds, up to eight pounds. Eight it pounds. is more of a challenge. You know, it is It is more of a challenge. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of ways, different ways you can fish for um the Florida strain fish and, and fly fishing is one of those ways. To me, it's the most fun and the most challenging. But yeah, I mean, easily there are plenty of places where you can, you know, if you spend enough time and invest 
your time in the right ways and in the right water ways where you can easily, you know, get an eight-pound fish if you put in the time. Well, do you have um, clients that that come to you and say, I want to go after a trophy. I don't care how many fish I catch. I just want to catch a big fish. And do you have other people that just says, say, you know, I want to fish for bass and whatever comes, comes? Do you have people who are very focused on a large fish? You know, I, I really, not very often. Every once in a while okay. somebody will say, yeah, I want to pursue a trophy. However, I would say the majority of my clients, really their goal is to get out on the water and they'd rather catch numbers. So they're more interested in having a day full of action, you know, versus, because trophy fishing is very different than, you know, than fishing for action or, you know, having a day of fishing for numbers, as I like to say. You know, I mean, it's, it is very, it's very different. I mean, if you're out there and you're hunting for a trophy, you know, again, you're you're fishing sometimes, um, you know, either really early morning hours, late afternoon hours, evening hours, and, you know, you may go hours without getting a hit because in a lot of cases maybe you're using a larger fly and there's you're going to eliminate a lot of fish because not all, you know, not all of the, you know, small to mid-sized bass are going to be as anxious to try to, you know, take a fly that's a much larger profile. So you're eliminating a lot of, um, if you're trophy hunting, it is just a very different experience. Be prepared to invest a lot of time in, you know, a lot more, doing a lot more casting and a lot less action just because of the way that you, you have to go about it. Right, right. Uh, Chris in Polk County, Florida, uh, wrote in, he says, do you attempt to catch big bass in water deeper than 15 feet? Uh, I think you've already said that's probably about the max you fish, but could you describe tactics to use in that type of fly fishing? So, um, uh, and then he says, also thanks to you and Roger for promoting freshwater fly fishing in Florida. So, yeah, um, why not? <laughs> uh, so, um, Kind of talk to maybe Chris about you know maybe you know how you fish the bottom more with flies, uh, you know when when you think the fish are down deeper. Yeah, and I'll be honest, I don't do that very often because, like I said, okay. I mean, with our most of our lakes here in Florida, our Florida's natural lakes are generally you know like Lake Okeechobee, for example, on average is between five to eight feet, um, and you know that's a prime example of one one of our, you know, most prominent bass fisheries here in the state. So I really, I mean, for me to speak to water, fishing water that's deeper than 15 feet or so, it's tougher. I mean, somebody out in, you know, California or Texas could probably speak to that a little bit better than I could. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously there's patterns you can use, you know, like the clouds are deep minnow and use sinking lines and things, I'm sure, um, or, you know, to use some of those crayfish patterns and things like that to work on the bottom, but that's not something that I do in the waterways where I fish very frequently, so I'm certainly not an expert on that. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, Joe in Titusville, Florida says, uh, hello, Debbie, I live and fish in central Florida primarily, and I'm wondering how you go about determining where on the St. John's River uh, to begin, Highway 46 is about eight miles from where I live. Also, 
is there a particular time of day outside of first light and last light that stands out for you? He says, I was a guide for fly fishing trout and muskie for approximately 25 years in Wisconsin and Montana. So he's experienced, but uh, he's looking for some tips. Uh, do you know the St. John's River? A little bit. I've been up there for a Florida Outdoor Writers Conference before, and I will say that Lake George, which is right, you know, I mean, the St. John's River basically runs through, runs into Lake George, and Lake George is is a fantastic bass fishery. So I would definitely tell him to do a little bit of research on Lake George because that is, I have had a very good experience fishing up in, in that area and specifically fishing on Lake George. So that would be my recommendation first and foremost. And then the second part of his question was refresh my memory. Uh, he was talking about uh, time of day outside of uh, oh, first time light, of day. last light. Yeah. Yes, another great question, which is which leads me to the importance of solar tables. And I don't know, you know, I don't know how many people are keyed in on solar tables, but I would say if you do not currently check the solar tables, from my personal experience and based on the research that I've done, for example, going up to the Florida Bass Conservation Center and talking to a lot of these fisheries biologists, I can't stress the importance of, in terms of time of day, referencing that solunar calendar and fishing those major solunar periods. You know, they're not always going to be, if you want to catch a, a, a trophy fish or you want to have a really good experience, you know, those solunar periods are not always going to fall, um, you know, during ideal time. Sometimes they're very late at night. Sometimes they're super early in the morning. But I will say that, you know, I, I keep a fishing log, and, and I can definitely say with a lot of consistency, in addition to the specific time of day, looking at those those prime days in the lunar calendar that, um, you know, I really like to fish, like, the three days leading up to a full moon. I found that to be really, really effective when I'm targeting you know, our Florida strain largemouth bass, and that's usually when I see a lot of those bigger fish becoming more active. And I always tell people, too, you know, do a little bit, for those of you who are on, you know, social media, just pay attention the next time. If you if you do track solar periods and you log all of that and you pay attention to it, you know, you'll see, I bet you anything, you'll notice in your Facebook feed or in your, you know, your Instagram feed, if you're into Instagram, that, You'll, see, you'll notice a lot of people start posting pictures of, you know, bigger fish and more fish as we come up on that full or new moon period. What about the three days after the full moon? You know, I think that um, I, I'm a big believer in the three days leading up to it. I'm not so much. I think that, you know, uh, the day after specifically a full moon, I don't even, if I have a trip, I'll try to schedule it in the afternoon versus in the morning because I feel like those fish have been feeding under the light of that moon for the majority of the night. And therefore, you know, as the sun starts coming up first thing that morning, they're just they're not feeding as much. <laughs> They're really not. Yeah. So I would yeah. I, I generally wait if I do have a trip or somebody really wants to fish that day, I'll wait till the afternoon or the evening that day after. 
Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I know uh, having fished down in Belize in the salt that that you know the, the the few days after that full moon is never seemingly very good, and it could be for the same reasons you just said. You know, um, the, the the feeding might, might have been aggressive prior and during, and and not so much after. So it's got to be something mm-hmm. to it, right? <laughs> Yeah. Well, definitely, definitely. And a lot of times, you know, you, you can't plan your day by that because, you know, the best time to go fishing sometimes is just when you can. But if you right. if you do keep a log and you happen to go back and look to see when those prime periods are, you'll see a correlation a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have a couple more questions here. Um, Matt Fugazi wrote in and he says, uh, I have successfully gotten my wife into fly fishing, and she loves our high mountain lakes and streams for trout here in Colorado, but hates crowds. Uh, we all do, Matt. <laughs> and do you have suggestions <laughs> for her to come uh, fly fishing with me and enjoy bass here in Colorado? Because we do have bass fishing here in Colorado. So that is that is fantastic. I am very excited to hear that you've gotten your Matt, your your wife into fly fishing, Matt. That's awesome. I love hearing that. Um, definitely. I would say if, if you guys have any, you know, small little ponds, you know, get her started fishing in some of the smaller waterways, you know, that are close to home. Because, frankly, I think, you know, for me personally, when I first started started out, I really enjoyed the feeling of just being able to go out on my own in my backyard. And it was it was accessible. It was easy you know, it didn't require a whole lot of preparation. And and I think, it, you know, it's kind of like going to the gym, right? Anything that you, that's convenient for you that you can do, you know, without a, a ton of travel or prep is going to be something you're going to, you're going to tend to stick with more. So I would say, you know, if you've got some neighborhood ponds, um, you know, or some slower moving rivers that are close to home, you know, take her to those places or get her set up, you know, again, yeah, in, in the neighborhood pond because she's going to experience that success early on and feel empowered because of the fact that she can get out there and do it on her own and not have to, you know, always rely on somebody to take her out there. And to me, that's what's going to keep her involved and in sticking with it. Yeah, yeah, the smaller water is, not, you know, uh, uh, always less intimidating. Uh, to all of us, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so uh, great. That's where I started. In fact, the, the first fish I ever caught on a fly, the, and the, a fly that I tied, was a largemouth bass in a farmer's pond near, near where we live. So I'll always remember that. It was yep. a mosquito <laughs> fly. But, a mosquito um, fly. Very, yeah. very cool. Yeah, yep. yeah. And it was, you know, it was like twilight and... Uh, we would wade in up to our chests in the water with no waders. We didn't have any waders, and we were just kids. And uh, but it was I'll always remember that fish. So, and it was a largemouth bass. A um, couple more. George Kelly in Wikiwachi, Florida. Uh, he says, "Do you think the day will come that tournament bass fishermen will ever consider using a fly rod for tournament competition?" <laughs> <laughs> I. Uh... I don't think so. I don't think so. That's a great question, George, but I don't think so. I think there's, you know, it's, you know, it's always so interesting to me because I think that on the whole, I think people who fish for, 
most warm water species are, everyone's pretty down to earth and willing to share information. But when it comes to tournament bass anglers and the just array of lures and soft plastics and <laughs> equipment that is out there, I mean, it is just, it is just really, really intense. And there's certainly, you know, a lot of money in all of that tackle. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think those, those two will ever <laughs> cross over, but who knows? It, it would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I will definitely. Say that a, I know a, a, more of a business, isn't it, of catching fish than than the, yes. the pleasure of catching fish? I think, but uh, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. One more question, Silas Gray. He says, "How do you get the pelicans off your hook? <laughs> have you ever had <laughs> a, a bird on your on your fly rod?" You know, I have not. Thank goodness, I have not. But I do know a lot of saltwater fly anglers who have had that happen. And I will say that we are very fortunate because. Our Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission has a fantastic video on their website that shows you exactly how to do it. But, you know, basically, you know, one of the first things you want to do is you want to make sure that you keep the birds, you get the bird's beak restrained, and then a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll cover the bird's head with a towel or a hat or a shirt, and that way the bird is subdued a little bit. And then, yeah, yeah of course, you, you want to, use clippers or, or or pliers to to obviously get the, the hook, hook out of the yeah. bird. But, yeah, like I said, FWC has a great video huh. and step-by-step instructions on their website. So just go to I, myfwc.com, and there's a video <laughs> on how to okay. unhook wildlife. Yeah, that's interesting because I never thought that had happened. I always wonder about it, even with these swallows, you know, over lakes and, and rivers here in Colorado. So I wonder if a swallow is going to come by and get one of my, you know, dry flies or whatever. But last year I was in Belize and uh, and I was casting for a tarpon and a frigate bird took off the tree right where I was casting and went right into my line and I had him, I had him hooked up in the air for just a few moments and luckily the hook just came out and uh, but I was like, oh my uh, God, what are we going to do with a frigate bird in the boat? You know, because they're huge birds. Right. <laughs> you know, so uh, so luckily I, I literally got off the hook on that one, uh, no pun intended, but uh, and, and happy about it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, good. Well, we're running out of time here, so we're going to have to um, uh, wind things up here. And uh, hold on just a second for me. And um, we are going to give away prizes here. Uh, we're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. We're also going to give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And then we're going to give away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. Um, and uh, to find out more about what Stackpole has to offer, go to stackpolebooks.com. They are a great resource uh, for all things in the way of books and fly fishing as well. So hang with us uh, just a few more moments. We'll be doing those uh, prize giveaways and uh, winding things up here. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pedal mine still remains a threat to the region, and 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit savebristolbay.org forward slash tell President Trump. Again, that's savebristolbay.org forward slash 
Tell President Trump. And there you'll learn more about how you can get involved and support the cause to, to save this uh, incredible fishery. So do check it out. So now we're ready to give away a few prizes here. Um, just a quick reminder before we do so, uh, before you leave our website, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link, leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So we'll give away a few prizes now. The winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on some of these great prizes we have to offer. Now, if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show, and we'll provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. So if you don't win tonight, go join. Uh, they're a great organization to support. And they deal well with freshwater and saltwater and warm water and around the world. So uh, they are truly international. So our winner for that is, fire up the database here, and it is Russ Luke. Russ Luke in uh, Florida. So uh, somebody from Florida was listening tonight, and that's great. Congratulations, uh, Russ, and uh, hope you enjoy your membership, and uh, I'm sure you will. The second thing we're going to give away is a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, courtesy of Amato Books, another great resource for books uh, on fly fishing and periodicals as well. So check them out, amatobooks.com. And our winner for that is Kenny Gilman in California, Kenny Gilman. So uh, congratulations, Kenny, and congratulations, Russ, on registering and, uh, and uh, enjoying the show tonight. So Now we're going to give away a, um, a book, courtesy of Stackpole Books, and... Um, you're going to answer this question if you want to participate on the home page of our website there in that, that Q&A section there. So put in your answer there. Um, uh, name the ridge. Name the ridge that um, Debbie talked about in Central Florida, where most of the uh, the larger bass can be found along that ridge. Name that ridge and. Uh, you'll win a book from Stackpole Books tonight. So that might be a little hard, Debbie, but and it takes a minute for them to hear me because there's a slight delay, and then they have to type in. But do um, you think that one's too hard? No, I don't think so. I think that's a, <laughs> okay. great, I think that's a great question. So let's see what happens. Sometimes, uh, I mean, if they want to catch big bass, they got to know where that, that is, right? So let's see it's, it's here. A, an important geological feature here in Florida, for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely something that I learned uh, from talking to you that I had no clue about. Let's see here. Waiting for some responses. Uh, do you sing, Debbie? <laughs> Can you entertain, entertain us while we're waiting? <laughs> I you may not want to hear me sing, but <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's see here. Uh, let's see. We're starting to get some 
come on, guys, take a guess. Hopefully, folks were listening. Can we give them a hint that it was at the beginning of the? <laughs> we uh, my computer is running a little bit slow. See if they were Actually, paying attention. I'm uh, I'm amazed that I've gotten this far tonight because um, I'm uh, the um, my router went out yesterday here. And so I'm oh, actually no. attached via uh, my neighbor's house <laughs> next door to their wireless because I can't get a router up here in the in the, in the mountains for, for two days. So uh, so we're, we're making uh, so everything's kind of moving really slow here. But I think okay, I think we've got uh, one here, uh, Lake Wales Ridge. So is that right, Debbie? That is correct. So winner, that's, winner, winner. Uh, Dave Dillon uh, was paying attention, and uh, Dave, let's see here, uh, he's in Oklahoma, either way, but I bet there's a lot of bass fishing in Oklahoma, so um, that's probably why he's listening, but uh, way to go, Dave, uh, and Dave's listened before on the show and won uh, a few other times, so uh, good for him, and we'll get, uh, we'll get uh, a list over to you, Dave, and you can pick a book, I've got your email here, so be looking for an email from me, and uh, Pick a book and let me know, and we'll get it out, shipped out to you. So thanks for paying attention, taking notes, and, uh, and uh, learning from Debbie, as we all have done. And thank you, Debbie, for you know, sharing your knowledge and being with us tonight and talking about largemouth bass. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's been great. And uh, uh, next time to Florida, if the wind's kicking up on the salt, then I'll go inland, right? <laughs> Exactly. That's thing to do, yeah, yeah. So um, great. Well, um, hopefully everybody's found the archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for a link on the top line menu where you'll find all of our, our past shows. I've done over 350 interviews, so you can search by a keyword like trout or tarpon or largemouth bass or Florida, and uh, you'll find lots of shows, lots of education to be had there. So check it all out. Uh, our next broadcast will be on June 17th. 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, we're going to be interviewing Mike Hogue, and our topic for the show will be fly fishing the Finger Lakes region of New York. And um, this is a great place uh, in New York. It's on the wine trail and uh, all kinds of exciting things, a great place to go vacation and visit. So Mike's a professional fly tire and a fly shop owner up in that area. He's fished uh, Finger Lakes region of New York for over 25 years. The lakes, unique to them in, in themselves uh, in beauty, offer salmon, rainbow trout, and lake trout all available on the fly. So listen in as Mike takes us on a tour of this unusual fishing destination and, and how he shares his secrets to uh, success in fishing this area. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, Douglas Outdoors, and Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of your future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.